leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. to capture and parse data in real time and at a vast scale is transforming our approach to biomedical research and has the potential to change the way we think about the causes of disease, public health, and medical interventions. Paul Glimpscher, president and CEO of DataCubed Health and professor of neuroscience, economics, and psychology at New York University, where he directs the Institute for the Study of Decision-Making, is conducting an ambitious study known as the Human Project. The study will gather data on the everyday habits and health of 10,000 New Yorkers over 20 years to find critical connections between biology, behavior, and the environment to drive evidence-based public policies to improve lives. Through his company, DataCubed Health, he's using the same technologies to drive patient-centered research. We spoke to Glimpscher about his work, how technology is changing the nature of health research, and how he sees digital technology transforming the healthcare continuum from discovery to care. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Danny. Happy to be here. We're going to talk about the Human Project, your work in neuroeconomics, and your company, DataCubed Health. But let's start with the Human Project. This is a large and ambitious long-term study. Can you describe what it is and, and what you're trying to figure out through it? Sure. Well, I mean, I have to say I'm somebody who grew up uh, first as an academic before I went into business. And I grew up in the era of the Human Genome Project. And I think what we were told as uh, young scientists working in medical centers was that once we had the sequence data from the human genome, sort of the scales would drop from our eyes and um, diseases would be cured. And while I think that's largely been true in some areas of cancer biology, on the whole, the human genome sequence hasn't really done the work that we'd hoped it would do. And I think a lot of us I've spent a lot of time wondering why that is and what we need to empower that data set and uh, what's the next step uh, forward. And I think the human project really is an effort to respond to that challenge by realizing that the genetic sequence data just didn't turn out to be enough to explain disease and that things like uh, lifestyle, uh, the decisions we make, the toxins we're exposed to, the food we eat, uh, who we interact with, how dense our social networks are, what our financial status is, what our educational status is. These are all the determinants of health that really need to be combined with genetic data 
in order to make the kind of advances that the Human Genome Group imagined 30 years ago. And the Human Project is just an effort to continue that process and accumulate those new kinds of data and uh, figure out the roots and causes of disease the way we'd always hoped we would be able to. Well, how does the, the project work? What data are you collecting, and how are you going about doing that? Yeah, so, I mean, of course, that's the challenge. You know, today, we each shed, and I think shed is the right word, something like a gigabyte of data uh, every day sometimes, but certainly high megabytes of data every single day. As we walk around in the environment, our phone companies keep track of where we are, uh, they know whether we're getting exercise and how fast we're walking, how much we're bicycling. Uh, we are shedding data about uh, our consumption. We uh, are using credit cards that are indicating whether we're eating at fast food restaurants or whether we're eating at slow food restaurants, whether we shop at uh, organic grocery stores or whether we uh, eat all of our meals out of bodegas. Um, that kind of data is there. It's flowing in real time into the hands of uh, many of our corporate partners. And the challenge for the Human Project was simply to ask, could we invite uh, New Yorkers, ultimately we hope more than just New Yorkers, but to start with New Yorkers, to share that data as a community and combine it with more traditional medical data, like uh, genetics data, like the electronic medical report data that uh, are health insurers use in an effort to find the roots of disease. Um, the way we explain it to our participants is we say, look, um, if two uh, twins with identical genetics grow up in the same household and one of those twins gets diabetes, there's only a 10% chance that the other twin will get diabetes. So there's obviously 90% of stuff that those twins are doing, which are different enough in their lifestyles to mean that one gets diabetes and the other doesn't. Over the course of their lives, they've made decisions, been exposed to toxins, made dietary choices, purchasing decisions, faced educational challenges, sometimes had run-ins with the criminal justice system. And at the end of all of that, one of them has diabetes and one of them doesn't. And we have no idea what those are. And the Human Project's challenge is to accumulate all of the different data points that constitute a life path and ask, why is it that when twins go down the path of life, those paths fork somewhere, and one of those forks can lead to heart disease or diabetes or Alzheimer's, and the other fork just doesn't? Because, of course, what we want, all of us, is to know where those forks are and know what the right way to turn is. Is this a study you think would have been possible to embark on, say, 10 years ago? Or is this, say, something about where we are with technology that is not only enabling it, but leading us to think in terms of networks and relationships in this kind of way? Yeah, I think this is a study that's really only become possible in the last two or three years. You know, 10 years ago, um, our digital exhaust was measured in the kilobytes. Um, I was a pretty forward-looking person 15, 20 years ago, and I had an email account. Uh, I certainly didn't have a smartphone. I certainly didn't have a smartphone that tracked my location. Um, I did use a credit card, but that data was largely held by banks. It wasn't uh, widely available. I had a credit score, but that was about it. Um, 
today, I generate hundreds of megabytes of data a day, um, everything from the fact that my Android smartphone logs my location every three minutes and sells it every night, or my cell phone providers sell it every night, to uh, my credit card data, which is now aggregated by a handful of giant companies and sold every night. My health data, of course, is being aggregated by uh, many of the large corporations I interact with for healthcare, and that data gets sold. So I think that the commercial industry has really driven this. Data is more and more there. Data is more and more for sale. Uh, it's just that we haven't uh, gathered that data together in a kind of public health way. And so it becomes possible now to ask people basically to opt in to share data that they're already giving away for sort of social and public good and aggregate that data into a massive database that can answer the kinds of questions we've been talking about. So I think it's really only possible because large-scale data aggregation is now commonplace. Um, and it's just an opportunity that I think has sort of come of age at this point. I, I imagine gathering and analyzing all of this data is a big challenge. How do you make it consistent and in a form that can be interrogated in a meaningful way? And how do you know you're gathering the correct data points for the types of questions you want to ask? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, sometimes I think that we're data foragers. And sometimes I think we're principled scientists. It, it can kind of go both ways. There are data points we'd love to have that we know are really important for health and disease that are just too hard to gather. And there are other data points that are so easy to gather nowadays that um, it seems like it would be a crime not to try and gather them. And then there's a vast chunk of data in the middle. But I agree, data standardization is super important. One of the things we realized early on was that whenever possible, we didn't want to be ingesting administrative records from other sources. We wanted to build a sort of pr proprietary tool for ingesting data. And so we use um, tools that write on your smartphone. We use some in-house tools, uh, sort of Internet of Things things that can go into your household and that are very inexpensive and can give us precision on air quality or temperature and humidity or carbon dioxide levels, those are actually all important for understanding everything from how often you take a shower to um, whether or not you use a gas stove and how often you cook. So we have to be creative, but generally we try and build our own data pipelines. Um, when, for example, we're looking at geotracking data, we, um, we do gather those using uh, tools on the phone. We uh, don't have access to the kinds of precision that your phone company has access to, but the precision we have is certainly good enough for the kinds of uh, healthcare uses that we're interested in. So I'd say the first rule is build it yourself if you can. Um, that ensures data quality. It means you can keep track of where the data is coming from, how good it is, standardize it across all your participants. When you have to, and you're going to ingest it, ingest it from as many as few sources as you possibly can, which reduces the burden of the complexity of ingestion. Um, electronic medical records are kind of a worst case for us. And um, in terms of the what's the right data, I mean, generally what we do is we put together panels of uh, experts, members of typically the U.S. National Academy of Science, and we sit down and ask uh, two basic questions. How hard will it be to get? How important does it seem to get? And it's the trade-off between those two which determines uh, what measurements go into our 
basically at this stage 500 measurement point kit and which uh, get put on a future burner. One of the other challenges I imagine is what scientists call correlation versus causation. How will you be able to determine that connections you find will be causal? Oh, Danny, that is such a good question. Um, so a lot of the data we have is a little different from what you're used to. Um, let me just flesh out a traditional correlation causation problem, and then let me show you how an econometrician, that's one of my areas of formal training, uh, would in engage that problem. So let's, uh, let's imagine the following. Um, we're going to uh, look at when you get a cold, and then we're going to take everybody who has a cold versus everybody who doesn't have a cold, and we're going to do something like uh, measure a blood chemistry uh, level or a location in space level or a trajectory uh, through the environment, and we're just going to see which trajectories through the environment or blood chemistries are enriched in people who have uh, the cold and people who don't have the cold, and that's a correlation. So we'd say, for example, that people who tended to go through uh, Madison Square Garden in New York City have a higher incidence of colds than people that don't. That by no means establishes that Madison Square Garden caused the cold. Now, when you have really detailed time series data, so we actually know not just that we have you were in Madison Square Garden or you won't, or you weren't, you have a cold or you didn't. But instead, we know exactly when you were in Madison Square Garden and when you were in 10 other places. And we know exactly what day you got the cold. And we have that time signature data for hundreds and hundreds of people. We can now ask a question like, uh, is there an event which happens a particular number of days before you come down with a cold that all of these people share which seems to play the role of a common cause. The, um, the name of this kind of analysis is called uh, Granger Causality Analysis, and it was pioneered by the UCSD uh, Nobel Prize-winning economist Clive Granger. And what uh, Granger showed was that if you have rich enough time series data and you can see enough what the time course is, you can actually go beyond simple correlation analysis and do these kinds of very, very temporally precise time correlation analyses to try and identify the time of causal event. Now, we still are aware when we find such an event that we haven't really proved causality. So we often refer to those events as Granger causes to kind of hedge our bets and admit that, well, we know that they precisely fill the time requirement. We haven't yet established that what happened there was the true cause. And so we often settle for knowing that something is Granger-caused rather than truly caused. But Granger causes of everything from economic well-being to disease tend to be pretty accurate. And so I think that it's the, the sort of in a nutshell answer is once you get beyond a couple of measurements and you get these rich time series data, like geotrack, which are every three minutes, we are, can get, get past just looking for straight-up correlation by using a covariance matrix and instead go to Granger causation where we can use the time series to get a pretty good handle on what the real cause was and when it happened. How do you think this project may reshape the way we think about big health and social problems? Well, uh, let me give my two favorite problems that I think are on our front burner right now. Um, 
One is Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is a huge problem, as you know, in the United States and worldwide as our populations age. Um, and the truth is we just don't know um, what it is that causes Alzheimer's disease, and we don't really know what it is you can do to prevent yourself from getting Alzheimer's disease. If you look at the correlation literature and ask what is the thing that seems to protect you best from Alzheimer's disease, oddly enough, it's going to college. Now, I mean, none of us really believe that sitting in a musty classroom uh, at age 19 infers some magical protection against Alzheimer's disease. What must happen is people who go to college lead slightly different lives, and something about the differences in their lives protects them from Alzheimer's disease. But we just don't know what that is. I mean, this is where the fork in the path metaphor, I think, is really strong. There is something, some fork in the path, where two twins, one goes to college and one doesn't. The one who goes to college does something different that protects them from Alzheimer's disease. And Granger causality is the right tool to ask that question if you actually had their path through time from college to Alzheimer's disease. And I think that's really the way we have to be looking at this. You know, what are we doing and when are we doing it that's protecting some people and doing the opposite with other people. Another good example of one of these puzzles is, uh, which I'm fascinated by, and which we just published a, a paper on, is uh, asthma. In New York City, where I live, um, there's a famous fact, which is that we have very low-income neighborhoods in the Bronx that are bisected by the Cross Bronx Expressway. It's a very busy highway. And if you live on the downwind side of the Cross Bronx Expressway, your risk of asthma is about 10 times higher than if you live on the upwind side of the Cross Bronx Expressway. Now, that kind of makes sense. Um, these are both low-income neighborhoods. They're on either side of the um, Cross Bronx Expressway. And it seems like the story is now told, in order to protect you from asthma, we just have to keep you away from uh, that particular matter. But here's this other puzzling fact. There is an almost identically matched for pollution neighborhood in southern Manhattan called Tribeca. It's one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in uh, New York City. And in Tribeca, the bifurcating highway uh, provides access to the Holland Tunnel. Interestingly, in Tribeca, there is no significant incidence of asthma. Or there is, but not at the scale we're talking about here. So here we have a low-income neighborhood and a high-income neighborhood. You can see clearly how important particulate matter is in the low-income neighborhood, but it seems not to be that much of a risk factor in the high-income neighborhood. So there's something different going on in the high-income versus the low-income neighborhoods. If we knew what it was, we could probably do that thing in the low-income neighborhood and protect all those kids who live on the downwind side of the Cross Bronx Expressway from asthma. But we just don't have enough data about what those kids in Tribeca are doing, which is different from what those kids in the South Bronx are doing. Those are the kinds of you know, immediately accessible public health solutions that we're trying to access now. A commercial offshoot of your work is a company called Data Cubed Health. What is Data Cubed Health, and, and what does it do? Well, um, Data Cubed Health started as uh, just all the computer programmers who were trying to develop the tools for gathering the data for the human project. Um, you know, as we started out, we realized that we, uh, you mentioned this earlier, and it's so important, we realized that we had to standardize data types, we had to build our own tools for data collection. We had to regularize and have the ability to 
pivot quickly to gather new data types, and we started building uh, tools to do that on the Android and iOS phone systems. Then that led us to start to build uh, tools that went uh, inside the home, Internet of Things sensors that were very, very low cost and easily deployed, provided data we needed. And somewhere in that process, as we were beginning to tool up, um, a bunch of NYU's trustees actually said to us, you know, you guys aren't the only ones who would uh, benefit from having these tools. Uh, there are probably a lot of people out there who'd like the ability to gather this kind of data at scale and who would like to be able to do it quickly and cheaply and easily. So that led us to found DataCubed initially. Um, we really saw it as an academic exercise, and we imagined we would uh, sell these data collection tools to other big studies like human, and we have done that. But um, as the product matured, we realized that um, you know, we'd built a toolkit that was designed to write along with a patient or participant that was uh, designed to maintain engagement over the course of years and years and years, that was uh, fun to use, that was uh, capable of very, very high compliance rates. And as we, as we sort of developed the tool and started using it and we're working with university partners, we would have these interactions where someone would say to us, gosh, you know, you guys are achieving 95% compliance for an entire year over hundreds of instruments. Um, there's really nobody who's doing that other than you guys. And, you know, one thing led to another. We found ourselves um, licensing the platform to a large pharma company uh, for one study that they were doing. And before we knew it, um, DataCubed was one of these tech startups that was providing new tools for data collection. Um, it, today, our principal market is pharma. We run uh, clinical trials for many of the companies in the pharma big 20. Um, as well as lots of university projects that work on everything from Alzheimer's disease to diabetes. There's growing interest in real-world data and its ability to reshape the clinical trials process. What do you see the potential being here? Well, I mean, we think there's huge potential here that um, is only just starting up. You know, the last uh, FDA director, Scott Gottlieb, this was a really important part of his program. He spent a lot of time pushing pharma to include real-world evidence. And, um, you know, we, we feel really strongly about that. Um, what's the primary outcome in a diabetes study? Um, we feel like the primary outcome should be uh, real-time measures of insulin, which are completely doable now with uh, indwelling sensors and Bluetooth sensors. But um, that's usually not the case. In most diabetes studies, it's uh, the primary endpoints are hospitalization, reduction in hospitalization, reduction in acute care incidents, all important, don't get me wrong. But what diabetes treatment is trying to do is manage insulin blood levels. And today, with low-cost Bluetooth sensors, we can measure those in real time. And it just seems like Scott Gottlieb's right. That should be the future of the way we're making measurements in pharma. And so we've pushed very hard on this. There are lots of primary endpoints that we think are exciting new real-world endpoints that are more accurate than traditional measures. Now, that, that being said, government and uh, large pharma are slow to make changes, and we understand that. There's a lot of risk in changing your endpoints. And so while we always talk to our customers and our academic partners about new endpoints, we always ask them to say, don't tell us what endpoint you've been measuring. 
tell us the thing you're really trying to measure. Maybe we can measure that now directly. Um, so we find that that's hard. And um, real-world evidence is uh, an uphill battle right now in the industry, uh, but one that we're excited about. Within the clinical trials process, there are many points where digital health can be brought to bear from recruitment to the end of a study. What are the various touch points where you're applying technology? Well, the entire clinical trials market is kind of undergoing a digital revolution, as you probably know. And so that goes all the way from uh, recruiting uh, virtual cohorts. Some companies have focused on building giant uh, internal cohorts that can serve as the recruiting core for uh, drug studies. That's really not a place we're focused. Um, we do, we are involved in recruiting for human, but um, I think that's not a place where we think we bring a particular strength that we're willing to sell. Um, the next step once a population is recruited is they have to be consented. Um, we work really hard on consent for uh, low-income, low-literacy groups, and so we have, uh, I think, a beautiful uh, digital video consent system. This is also a place where the industry is changing. The traditional consent is a 20-page legal document that none of your patients understand, and uh, we really push away from that. We encourage people working with us to use video-based uh, cartoons that explain in plain and simple English exactly what you're going to be measuring and what the risks are and why you need to measure it. So we provide services like that on uh, in our handset platform. When it comes time to gathering uh, data, we have a, an easy-to-use management system that looks like, uh, I don't know, it looks it's a little simpler to use than the Salesforce platform. It makes it really easy to configure what you're going to be putting onto the handsets of your users. We're very, very involved in gamification not always taken up by our clients, but we really encourage them to use it. We know from academic studies that by gamifying clinical trials, we can boost uh, participation and compliance rates by 20 or 30 percent, which means drugs get to market faster, uh, clinical trials are more accurate, uh, re retention and recruitment problems kind of drop away. So that's very important to us. We really believe that um, when people are providing data, they should be, it should be an enjoyable experience. We want people, when they're working with our tools, to feel like they're working with a consumer-grade device that's as pretty and as fun to use as all the other devices that they have, whether those are Fitbit systems or whether those are uh, Candy Crush. And then at the back end, because all of our data runs through a single pipeline into a modern cloud, um, we can do all kinds of uh, fun analytics that are harder to do in more fragmented data systems and more fragmented ecosystems. It's easy for us to do everything from oh, uh, modern machine learning to uh, more traditional tools like uh, lasso and linear regression. You're also incorporating digital health technology into hospitals and health systems. Where do you see the best opportunities there to change delivery, reduce cost, or improve outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways that's a harder market um, and one that we're still trying to understand. Um, more and more of the payer provider systems are looking for efficiencies and better stratification of patients. And I think developing the ability to identify the patients who are at need, 
be able to predict when they have an acute problem and intervene before it becomes terribly expensive is something we're super interested in. A project we're working on along these lines is actually also in asthma, where we're trying to develop forward predictors that will tell us that a kid uh, who lives in a, a particular kid living in a particular apartment building on a particular day faces a hugely increased risk of hospitalization and that intervening with that kid at this particular moment could save the payer provider six, seven, eight thousand dollars. I think there is a lot of efficiency opportunity in the payer provider space where if we can identify those forks in the path that we want people to avoid and if they've gone down those forks, if we can identify the events that are going to precipitate acute health crises, see them before they happen and intervene to keep them from happening, I think those are the kinds of interventions you're going to see uh, widely used in the payer provider space. But I think realistically uh, that's probably five years off. Um, it's, it's just hard to get into that space. Payer providers are cautious. They're um, concerned about moving too quickly and alienating their participants, which we completely understand. But on the other hand, there are a bunch of them that are doing it and showing great, great success. Uh, innovative companies like Oscar and Kaiser Permanente do stuff that we're just super excited about. And uh, we think that that's the direction that payer providers will probably go in the next five years. I imagine payers may not only be interested in this technology from a, a way to intervene early and, and avoid costly treatments, but also for its potential to determine the value of treatments. Are, are they deploying it in that regard? Yeah, we haven't um, we haven't seen much of that. Um, you can certainly imagine an insurance company using data to decide whether a treatment is worth doing. Insurance companies do that today. Um, IBM's Watson-Truven platform is kind of one of the gold standards for this, and insurance companies all the time use data like that, claims data like that, to determine whether a treatment makes sense, whether it's cost-effective. Um, I have to say that as someone who's grown up in a university medical center and who's worked in public health, I'm always a little uneasy at that discussion, and so we haven't really leapt in on that. Uh, we really love the idea of helping payer providers provide better care and prevent hospitalizations. That's in everyone's interest, but um, making that hard call that a particular treatment is not uh, monetarily efficient is one that we feel uncomfortable getting involved in. Paul Glimsher, President and CEO of Datacubed Health and Director of the Institute for the Study of Decision-Making at New York University, where he's also a professor of neuroscience, economics, and psychology. Paul, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Annie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.